0: have done this morning is it's like the message. It's like what we're about to talk about in music. So that's just, I just think that's really cool. And especially when I only give him two or three sentences and say, so, Hey, this is where we're going. And he has to read my mind and kind of figure that out. But, um, the Lord says we be together for long enough where we're kind of able to do that. But that is just so cool how every song is really part of what we're going to be talking about today. If you're new to Calvary, We're in the second week of a series called Saved and Set Free. And uh, what we're doing is this. There there are these truths that we must, you just, you gotta get, you must receive, preferably, preferably at the moment of salvation. Uh, Now, that sets the tone for the rest of our lives as Christians. And what happens is, I'm afraid, that most of us didn't get those truths at that moment. Maybe you were a child and you just really couldn't comprehend all the, you know, the theological uh, information that's really happening uh, at that, at that time, or maybe the person leading you to Christ, they didn't really get it themselves because a lot of Christians don't, you know, we, uh, I'm afraid sometimes live in in the gray area of cliches or kind of some of the information, but we really don't, Uh, so for whatever reason, we're, you know, we're, we're going to talk about some of, in this session today, some of those fundamental, but I think absolutely profound truths uh, that we as followers of Jesus, or if you are here as a potential follower of Jesus, really need to know. So, um, doing something, I'd rather just have like one passage and stick with it. That's where my heart is, but you know, to get this in. Uh, I feel like I've got to cover several things within the Gospels, particularly in Paul's writing and James' writing today. So, uh, here's a scripture that says in Ephesians 1-7, He is so rich in kindness. We could do a message just on that. He's so rich in kindness that He purchased our freedom... Through the blood of his son, and our sins are forgiven. Wow, there is a lot in that verse. That's like a whole Bible in that verse. Uh, and I'm just really tempted to go off on that. But you know what? I'm going to come back to that another time. But Colossians 2 6 says this As, or you could really write the word since. Whenever you see as in the Greek New Testament at the beginning of a sentence, oftentimes it means, well, since you have, or as. You have received at one point in time Christ Jesus as Lord, so, and he changes verb tenses, continually living in him. You did this at one point in time, maybe you were 8 or 12 or 20 or 30, 19, uh, 40, 50 years old. I have a friend who was 65 years old when he trusted Christ. But what happened is, after that, it begins something different. So, what's going on is that God wants to restore, and this is what we talked about last week, He wants to restore His creation back to its original design. I'm an old car guy. Some of you here, you know that. Um, I have a 57 Chevrolet, and I always say I'm trying to sell it. <laughs> I'm not really trying very hard. Uh, but I have this car, and what I would love to do is to see it restored. It's not; it's it's a driver. It's what you call it. it's about in the middle. Uh, but when it's restored, the idea behind that—you get this right—is that you take something that was old and you make it new again. You make it new, and some of these cars—oh my goodness—they're better than when they were new. I mean, they're just gorgeous and they're flawless. Uh, That's the idea that's packed into this word when I say that God wants to restore his creation to its original design. Now for that to happen, there has to be a recovery that needs to take place. A rescue. And we sang that just a moment ago. So God's work is that Jesus came to buy, uh, to redeem. One of the attributes you would say about them is that they're free, that they're all freed up. Or how many Christians would you say, oh, they seem kind of uptight, or they're kind of bound up, or they're kind of legalistic? See how they kind of miss that sometimes because what God's purpose is is to set you free, to set you free. And I hope that just whoop, gives a little something in your heart. Now, there are two dimensions to God's work. First, there are the aspect of. To God's work that only He can do. Second, there are the parts of God's work that He has given to humans that we are responsible for. That's the way God designed things. Now, I know those of you who maybe you're a young Calvinist or, you know, you're a theologian. You're thinking, "Wow, I'm just really not comfortable with even the way you said that. Hey, I'm not challenging you. You go right ahead. But what I am saying is this. Within his sovereignty, God designed this to work in two ways. There is this uh, divine cooperation uh, of grace through faith grace through faith. Now, only God can save the world. Only he can do that. Only God can send his son, Jesus Christ, to buy our freedom. Jesus was uh, this perfect hybrid because he was so comfortable in both realms. Through his father, his DNA is divine. It is spiritual. Through his mother, his DNA is earthly. It's physical. First one, the monogonase, totally unique. that he was fully God and fully human at the same time. It's remarkable. So, God sends his son because he loves us. And the way God can love us is that he's not just a loving God, he is love. He actually is what love is. It is the essence of that. Uh, So, that's that's the plan. That's the idea. Now, when I talk about that, I thought about this last night. Um, we take that one big truth for granted, many of us. Now, for some of you, you think this is brand new information for me. I hadn't heard that before. Uh, but for a lot of you, you've heard it before, right? In fact, we've heard it so much that it's become familiar. What happens when something becomes really, really familiar? You take it for granted. You take it for granted. Daniel and I were here, um, I was going to say Daniel and I were here by ourselves, working one day. We're the only ones. I don't know where everybody else is, but we were here. And, um, give me a little shout out there. Okay, (laughs) the electricity went out. It's so funny when everything, like the the rooms are full sometimes. The last time this happened to everybody was here. And it just takes like two seconds. The doors open and people come out. What what do we do? We can't minister to the community or the body of Christ without electricity and the internet. We're helpless. We just shut down. You know, we, we don't know what to do. But we're so familiar with it that we take it for granted. So when it goes out... We're all, you know, we're calling KUB, we're like, hey, we gotta have electricity over here, you know, the church has just come to a grinding halt without it. If we can't get online, we all pack up and go down the street to Panera or Starbucks because how can you minister the gospel without the World Wide Web? So, yeah, you, know, you get the idea. We take this truth for granted. God did what only God can do in order to reconcile humanity back to himself, but humans, you and me, we have a role to play in the story. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 says this, yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become, to start being the children of God. Now, I'm a child of the 70s, okay? I'm like an ex-hippie, borderline freak. I was right in that little, that kind of generation. And, you know, one of the ideas that we kind of promoted or that was given to us and then we repeated was this, we're all God's children. Um, You know, and we've got songs about it, this idea, we're all God's children. You know what? You may feel a little offended if you think, well, I haven't received Christ, but I'm one of God's children. It's going to sound... Rude, but you know what? You're not. Technically,
1: biblically, theologically,
0: you're not yet. This is how we become his children is when we're in Christ. I'm not even going to tell you who the Bible says is your daddy. so Okay. So that's how, that's what happens. And, 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 and humans have a responsibility to receive the work that God did. You know how offensive that would be to him to say, Hey, I want to be one of your kids. I want to be one of your children. Now I'm not going to accept anything you did and this greatest sacrifice that you made and the whole work of salvation that you completed. I reject that. Can I still be one of your children? Well, no. No, that's not the way it works. Because God's work is a human, divine cooperation. In many circumstances... God will do only what God can do when and only when humans fulfill their responsibility of responding to his love. That's why if you continue to reject Christ and you die in that situation, the Bible says there's an eternal, there's an everlasting punishment or a consequence. You chose that and God says, I'm not going to force myself on you before or after the fact. Salvation is complete life restoration. What we received, then, he even commissions us in 2 Corinthians 5, he goes, now, I've reconciled you, we are reconciled, now I want you to go and to take this ministry of reconciliation to other people and to other relationships. I want you to replicate that in the, in the way that you live. So what does it mean exactly to experience salvation? What do what we talk about? Well, Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why He came. You want a definitive answer? Your friends say, well, what's Jesus about? Why did Jesus even come? You say, well... Oh, well, that's pretty easy, John 19.10. The Son of Man, Jesus, came, he's seeking, and to save those who are lost. Now, the Greek word, are you ready to be impressed? I'm going to say a Greek word. The Greek word, sozo, means to save. I really spent a lot of time with this one word. I told Kathy, I said, it's so funny. The whole message revolves around one word. One word in scripture, sozo, to save. Now sometimes this word is translated to heal. Sometimes to restore. Sometimes to make whole. It's really fascinating because like a lot of words, it has a broad meaning. It has a lot of depth to it. Jesus' mission. Was to seek and to save. And that's a broad mission, right? Kind of matches that word. He came to give us far more than just a ticket to heaven. You see, and that's the concept. I grew up, you know, in a a place where everybody was Christian. If you ask anyone you knew, you know, you're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Why? Because uh, I want to go to heaven. So we would pray a magic prayer, and we would go through some rituals, and then, uh, like, I, I grew up in a real disconnected spiritual environment. You know, we weren't very really religious, we weren't really church people, or any of that. But if you ask any of us, you're a Christian, oh yeah, why? Because that was our ticket to heaven. You don't want to risk that. But we didn't have this concept that there's a spiritual reality that goes along with that. That would have. Ne- that was ne- Intent to say, okay, I'm handing out these tickets, and you do this, and boom, and you're in. That's what he came to set us free from, what he came to give us. Check it out on YouTube, go back wherever you can find it and, and listen to last week's message. We won't go over that again but we are going to talk about it. Know, we do see that our relationship with him was not just damaged, it was devastating. It was such a huge event. Uh, we chose to break that off uh, and now God says I'm going to I've got this way that I'm going to restore that which was lost. And the biggest thing Then that was the relationship, the reconnection with God himself. Romans 10, 9 is another one of those powerful verses where it says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be (laughs) sozoed. You will be saved. You see, salvation is a restoration of what was lost. Now, sozo is also used to describe a restoration of purpose. In 2 Timothy 1.9, it says, He saved us, and He called us to, and you start filling in blanks. You see, before Jesus, I didn't have a real purpose. I've told some of you before, and I always live in this thing of, Oh, Lord, I'm going to repeat a story, they're going to go out, there he goes again. I was riding in a car with a guy down Hollywood Boulevard in Memphis, which is actually the street I, I lived on. and changed names. And I said, is this it? He goes, is this it? What? He thought I meant like a turn. Like, oh, no, this isn't where we turn. I go, no, no, no. I mean, is this it? Is this all we do? Is this our life? We get up and we go to work. We come home. We take a shower. We grab a bite to eat. Maybe we go to the clubs. Maybe we go to this. We hang out at a friend's house. We get up tomorrow and we do it all again. Is this it? Is that it? But when I met Jesus, all of a sudden I had a purpose. He restored that, and I had a meaning, and my life became something. So that's one of the meanings. It also means a restoration from demonic torment. This word is used like that. In Luke 8, 36, when there's this demonic man, and he meets Jesus, and and all the the, the people, you know, the townspeople around, were are going like, oh, this guy is crazy, this guy is demonic, and we're all kind of scared of him. He's wild. And Jesus comes in, and you know what it says? It says that Jesus touched him and he made him whole. That's probably what your scripture says, or that he brought that kind of experience to this guy, he made him well. There's also this word is used for restoration of our physical bodies. In Mark 10, 52, uh, there is a healing that takes place, and Jesus uh, tells this person, your faith has So you see, all these different aspects of it. In the New Testament, sozo means that our whole being, it has been, is being, and will be redeemed. It will be restored. That's your soul, your mind, your emotions, your will. Jesus come to your heart. And your tears were growing down your face. You go, yes, I want to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. And that was wonderful. And I believe probably you know, something genuine happened. But we didn't understand this fact to political ideas or, you know, times and places in history where maybe people were under bondage or under another government or a system or, you know, being held you know, by other people. And this is maybe that, but it's it's bigger and deeper and stronger. And there's something in your heart, there's something in my heart that longs Some of you are disappointed with what you thought was going to be Christianity because you didn't get freed up. You still live with the same old stuff and the same old problems, the same old bondage, the same old, you know, you still feel that that present that you think, wow, this isn't, what does all this talk about freedom? Is it just talk? It's really not. And that's what we're going to spend the next couple of weeks uh, just showing you some ways that maybe God, I think absolutely God is that you free. Uh, salvation is immediate and it's complete. You're as saved as you're ever going to be at that moment. But it's also ongoing. It's an ongoing kind of a thing. Hebrews 10, 14 says, by that one offering, he perfected. And the word perfected means he completed, he finished, he Wrapped it up, he perfected forever all those, check this out, whom he is making holy. So he perfected it, boom. And within that, now he's working it out, now he's perfecting that holiness uh, in our lives. This is a beautiful verse because it describes salvation within just one sentence in the past and present tenses. There's a promise of salvation, and it is a deliverance from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin in your life. And if you're living anything less than that, you're missing out on the freedom of Christ. So although salvation is immediate, it's an act that just it happens. And some of you, if I said, hey, tell me about when you were saved. You can go back, right? You can tell that story. Well, I was in church. Or I was, I was with my parents. And we were in my room and we were talking. Or I was in the youth camp. And one night, and you can go back because it was a An experience. But that's not all it is. It's an immediate act that only God can accomplish. But then we have this responsibility to live in, to live out our salvation continually. Paul said in Philippians 2.12, you obeyed, you received. Now, work it out. Live it out. Be that person. Folks, if we don't understand this principle of human divine cooperation, you will continue to be frustrated. Now, what I call, what Hudson Taylor called the exchange life, or what Watchman Nee called the normal Christian life, or uh, what God calls sozo, salvation, is really a transaction. Maybe you stopped at the coffee shop on the way in, and you swiped your card, or you held your phone up, or you uh, gave somebody a credit card, or you used old-fashioned cash. Do you remember that? Some of you guys don't know what that is. But you paid, you made a transaction. You said, you know what, I'm going to trade this for that cup of coffee. So I'm going to give you, what is that? It's a tall? Okay, then I'm going to give you $12, and you're going to give me, you know, a little cup of coffee, some of you more economical, and you just waited. You got to Calvary, <laughs> and you drank Calvary coffee. Mm. And so you know that transaction. You traded, you, you traded something for something else. That's how you got your car, your house, your apartment. You know, you walk into the manager's office and say, here's my money. Can I live here another month? Yes, we'll make that trade. That's a transaction. You know what? This is a spiritual transaction. First, we need to recognize that God is holy and just. He can't be anything less than that. That's why you can, in all fairness, say, I'm not going to live for anybody that's not holy and just. However, Lord, would you just kind of wink at my sin? Would you just kind of, would I not have to do, can you just give me a little break here? Can you, you know, something over to the side. And God says, well, no, I can't do that now you're trying uh, to degrade my integrity. You're, you're calling on me to compromise? I can't compromise my justice and my holiness. Romans 3, 10 is a very familiar scripture for a lot of Christians. It says there are none righteous. No, not one. Not even one. So we need to recognize God's holy. And it can't be anything less. Secondly, we must understand that God Jesus bore the punishment, he paid the penalty that we deserved. That's how his justice, his holiness was reconciled. Says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that's the human part of the transaction, then you would be saved. from hanging out at church for a long time now, for uh, three, almost four decades, I guess. Uh, so it have been around for a while, and, this, and most of my experience, I've spoken and worshipped in lots of different kinds of churches, and I have friends and relatives in all different kind of places, and, and things like that, but particularly my main, uh, what would you say, experience or life has been in Baptist denomination. I've been, I went to a Baptist college, I went to a Baptist seminary, uh, I've always served except for one experience in, in Baptist churches, so I kind of get it, you know, about Baptists. And here's the thing about Baptist. we're, and, and I see this every Sunday morning, and I, if I were Kevin, it would drive me crazy, because God calls us to worship, that is our defining experience of the week for us. That's why I love Sundays, you know, because we worship corporately together, but you know what, some folks, here's how, and, and think, oh, Dan, you're going to get off on that. Yeah, I kind of am because, we well, you know, we do this. We kind of stand. Or we just, we're just we not engaged. We're looking around. And it's okay. If you don't jump up and down, God bless you. You know, you think, I just don't have that personality. I just really don't make me do that. You, know? you ever go to one of those parties where they make you play silly games? And you think, I don't want to play that game. I don't want to be silly. I don't want to. I understand that. But you know what? Worship is more than standing there like this. And you at least got to move your lips. Come on. We just stand thinking, I'm worshiping because I'm a Baptist and this is the way we do it. You know what? It's kind of wired into some of us. You're a little scared. Somebody's going to think you're a Pentecostal. <laughs> They're going to think you're something else. And you're going, like, oh, you know, and, and then and somebody's going to be scared to death if you see that. Come on, Margaret, let's get out. They're going to start rolling on the floors. I just know any minute, you know. And, and all of a sudden, like, Benny Hinn's going to jump down out of the bathroom. You know what? No. But what we've done is that we have allowed those who are more expressive to steal our worship. And some of you from those backgrounds. You ought to be going mmm, mmm, priest." You know, you ought to be I have a friend who uh, we used to speak back and forth in each other's churches. He's African American, and I'm about as white Southern boy as you can get. And and, uh, you know, we, we, and I was preaching in his church one day, and his congregation began to go, well, come on. And I started preaching. <laughs> and I'm going like this. And and, I, and I'm just, I start getting going, you know, and they're going, "Who say that, say that. And I found myself, no kidding, I'm standing there going like this. And I, and I stopped and I said, what's happened to me? <laughs> what are you doing? They laughed and applauded and they said, go on, go on, you know, and I thought, oh, you know, and it just, I just thought, oh my goodness, you know, it's just kind of a beautiful thing, but it just wasn't, you know, what we did at Union University (laughs) or in American Baptist Theological Seminary. We just didn't do that, you know, so some of you have allowed, your worship has been hijacked because, I don't know, I don't know, you need to get freed up. some of mm, some of these songs we sing how can you sing this blessed assurance Jesus is mine oh what a foretaste of Or Methodist or Presbyterian, because we kind of float right in here and we think, okay, I'm not way over there, high church, and all that stuff. And I remember uh, going to some friends to a Catholic church, and about 50 times during the worship service, I'm leaning over, going, what in the world is he doing? And what is that? And are they smoking? And are they, you know, I don't understand this. If you've ever been to a funeral or a wedding, you just think, oh, times 10, I don't get this. Woo-hoo. You know, and, and then some of you thinking, hey, that's the way I grew up. That's right. And some of you, you live there now, and you think, hey, and I'm not being really critical. I'm just saying there's a difference, and then there's a difference. And if you became a Baptist or something like that because you think, ah, I'm from the middle. I don't any of those. No, you know what? The idea, the original idea was that you would embrace both. That you would not divorce yourself from either of, of those because we're the body of Christ. And this is Scripture, people. This is Scripture. So... If you don't want your faith to be ransacked, we come to Jesus through faith and through confession. Through confession. When you confess words of truth, something powerful happens. and It's a real transaction. And maybe you haven't confessed anything for a long, long time. And then you wonder. A confession of our faith And what I'd like to do Is just to pause at this moment And to declare What salvation is And this is The foundation of freedom Now there's nothing magic There's nothing powerful There are different versions uh, And I think some of us have been duped Because we believed in a magic formula Or a prayer It's not about that It's a confession a declaration of what we know is true because that's what we believe in our heart. And that's how salvation is initiated. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, I've just written this out and then we, we've, we're going to put this up here in just a moment. I'm going to, to say this declaration out loud. If this is what you believe in your heart and you're ready to give confession to that, I want you just to say it along with me, if you mean it. Now, if you've already done this, I'm going to do it again. You know, I mean, not that I'm going to be saved again. I'm not going to be so-toed, you know, in the same way uh, that that I was. That's continuing. But I'm just going to declare it. I'm going to confess it. Okay? you ready? We're going to do this together. And you can do this out loud. Let's begin. Lord, I admit that I'm a slave to sin, separated from you and unable to save myself. I confess my sin to you, God, and I ask you for your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead paid the penalty incurred By my own sin. I believe He secured eternal life and freedom for me. Lord, I receive your forgiveness and freedom by faith, and I will begin today to live in it. I declare. i here are two truths that you need to live out for the rest of your life. As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. It's not over. It just started. And you need to participate should be uh, increasingly revolutionized by the Holy Spirit. There should be this greater awareness and this level of consciousness Liberation. So as we kind of get to the close we start wrapping up, I want to just tell you some things from James. James chapter 4. This could be like a whole message by itself. Uh, but he just sort of outlines, just falls into place so beautifully kind of how this works. He informs us that there are important postures and conditions of the heart that are necessary for you to live free. Don't you want to live free? I do. I want to live in freedom. I don't want to live legalistic life. I don't want to live in a a sinful life, bondage and, and, you know, covered by all that. No, I want to live free. So first, in James 4, 6, he teaches us to have humble hearts. Humble hearts. Uh, It says this, but he gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes. He stands against the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. Now when I say that, some people are going to think, well, I just need to start acting humble. You know, I don't know what that is, and kind of we've all got these different ideas. But humility, all it is, is is just seeing yourself as God sees you. It's just having a proper understanding of who you really are. It's not faking that you're, you know, less than that. You know, the, the, that's that's not what it is. Now, secondly, James four seven says, "Submit yourselves, therefore, to God." resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. He'll flee from you. And this teaches us that our hearts need to assume a posture of submission. There's repentance, and now there's submission to God. Instead of living outside of his design, the way he's built us and wired us, no, he says, live live within my design. And watch what happens next. And that is submission to God. Thirdly, James 4, 8-10 to says that we must confess sin and repent of it. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What a happy verse. <laughs> now what he's talking about there is this ongoing, this lost art of confession. And not just being sentimental or, yeah, I'm kind of sorry for what I did. No, it really starts to bother you. And it's not just for Catholics. (laughs) It's not just for whatever your background was. It's for us. And then in James 4, 7, he tells us to resist the devil. I've talked a lot about this last week because what I think happens is that most of us, we don't resist the devil. We try to ignore the devil. Our grandson has come to this place, he's two and a half years old, and he's becoming more and more aware of the world around him, and there are things that make him laugh, and it's so funny to us to see him just start laughing about something, and we think, oh, you get humor. You know, you've got a little sense of humor, that's so funny. But he's also got these things he's afraid of. Friday night we went to Wasabi, and uh, you see this coming in, and he's sitting right there, and we're trying to explain to him, now the guy's going to go, chop, 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 and he's going to chop things up. And then he's gonna make a fire, and the fire's gonna go. Poof, poo. and he goes, okay, okay, this is gonna be fun, and it's gonna be awesome. Until the guy came out. Have you ever been there? I mean, it's not cha-cha-cha, it's cha-cha-cha. And he's like, ah, this guy's got knives and cleavers, and he's four feet from me. You know, and he's just going wild. And then he sets that thing on fire. And so what he does, he covers his ears. And he covers his he's hiding from that because it's kind of hard to ignore. Now, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, he didn't say, I can't hear you. I'm not listening to R's, the letter R. Uh, When a spiritual action takes place, a transaction takes place, we need to repent first. And within that repentance we recognize the sin. I think the more specific you are about it, the better. And then we rebuke, or we renounce, or resist the enemy. It's when I tell our enemy, I will not tolerate you anymore in my life. And the freedom and the liberty I've given you, what was I thinking? I will not do that anymore. I take authority over you in Jesus' name because he's in me and I'm in him. And I'm not going to go along with this anymore. And then we replace our former way of living with God's way of living. And as the Lord begins, and he will do this, and for some of you who prayed that prayer in a genuine way uh, a moment ago, next few weeks and months are going to be amazing because you're going to begin to see, oh, that's sin. And I never thought about it before. God just begins to reveal sin and he begins to reveal strongholds in your life that you didn't realize were even there. Because you begin to line back up with his original design. And those things don't fit.
1: <coughs> and then lastly, we receive an
0: infilling a supernatural life. It takes supernatural means to get back to the way God designed us. Now what keeps us from doing that? What stops us from living the life of repentance? Oh my goodness, there are probably lots of barriers if we don't have time to talk about those. I think one barrier is pride. Um, we don't redefine sin and you, you can't call it something else and expect it to, to go away. So we're just prideful. Sometimes fear kept me from repenting, and there's the fear of exposure, or fear of rejection, or fear about your reputation, or fear of God's punishment, I want you to know, listen, there's no shame. Uh, you are free to be honest with <laughs> You ever have that moment when you were at the cliff, you know, at the river, and, oh, it looks so far down, or on the high dive, or uh, not too long ago for me, I'm in this tiny little airplane, and we're two miles up, and the guys, like, jump, and I'm like, what? The, why have I done this? I don't want to – wait, let's talk. And before I could even defend myself, and th- we were out of the plane, and I'm thinking – Oh Lord, and, and it was beautiful. It was beautiful, but there's that moment that you just gotta jump into Jesus, and you can. That sounded so corny, but um, you gotta trust Him more than yourself, and that's the way that transaction begins to work. In 1909. Thirty-six-year-old Mary Anderson visited the city of New York, and the way she got around mostly was by streetcars, and as she would do that, particularly in the winter months, she couldn't help but notice, you know, all the other cars were just starting to kind of come on the scenes, and she sees on particularly bad days when it was raining or snowing, it was awful, and there were so many these terrible things that happened just like that happen now, but here's what she noticed. Nobody could see where they were going, and they were driving these cars, and they would look out, and the weather's, you know, hitting them, and they're trying to to see, and they go back in, and there's water on on the windscreen, and they can't see that. Some people had the kind that would open, so they could peek out a little bit, but then rain's coming in. So what people began to do is just take a cloth, and they would reach around the outside. It reminded me of my mom when she was driving her old Pontiac Catalina when I was a kid, and it took forever for the you know the windshield to defog, and she's always wiping it with something. And then when it dries, you just see all this you know where her hands were, and you're, you're driving along, uh, and, and she noticed that that was you know that was a, a terrible thing, or, you know a thing. But everybody else just lived that way; they didn't think about it. Well, she goes back home to Alabama, and she comes up. With a design for the world's first mechanical windshield wiper. And she patented it and it stayed under her protection uh, until 1920. It was two decades before car companies added windshield wipers as a standard feature on cars. Isn't that crazy? I mean, we would think, the, the, hello. But you see, it was what what is called what was called by the developer of the iPod? An invisible problem. Nobody realized that was a problem until she provided a solution for the problem. And then you think, well, how did we ever live without that? See, some of you grace